Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Praise the Lord. If you could find your, your seat. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody bring their water wings tonight? Maybe a kayak or a canoe? You could probably take the ditch all the way home from here, I'm guessing, the way it's been raining. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, that summer will arrive before August. I, if I was a betting man, but I'm not. <laughs> before fall, right? Um, um, anybody who wasn't here on Sunday uh, missed a great service. There were a couple of outstanding messages that were delivered. Um, and Brother Kiley, in the main session, preached a message, uh, and he talked a lot about truth. The, the underlying theme of his message was, was truth. And he made a comment about midway through it that really stood out to me and struck a chord. He, he, he said that truth is something that does not need defending. It doesn't require a defense, but it does need to be guarded. Truth is something that stands on its own. It has its own foundation that is immovable, unshakable, can't be turned upside down. It is not subject to human reasoning. Uh, Nothing that we can do or say, invent, can change what is true. But we we can be influenced in what we believe. And so truth is something, in my opinion, there is nothing more worth guarding and protecting and holding as most precious in life. And I mention that because I, I feel like Brother Kylie's sermon was really a nice compliment and an affirmation to this message that I've been working on. I would say that I've been working on it for about two weeks, but really I've been working on this one for about eight years. Um, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I, I have a subject tonight that... Um, is a a significant one to me because it's something that I have battled with for over the years. And perhaps I I suspect that I'm probably in the company of people who can share a a similar story. And I'll refrain from telling you the the subject uh, from the outset here. But first, I would like to uh, read our opening text. Uh, We're going to look at, first, we'll look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. And If you're following along, if it's up on the screen, or if you brought your Bible, um, you'll read along and you might notice some subtle differences because I'm I'm reading from a a, a much lesser, more seldom cited version of the Bible called the John Matson's paraphrase version. The the JMPV, as it's very obscurely known. Uh, This is uh, Paul's second letter that he wrote to his friend Timothy. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. For I may or may not be ready to die, though I have basically no choice at this point. Verse 7. I would have fought harder if I'd known what I was fighting for. And I may or may not have crossed a finish line somewhere along the way. But hopefully, my faith is still intact. I can't be sure. Verse 8. Henceforth... There may possibly be a crown of righteousness awaiting me if the Lord, the righteous judge, deems my efforts sufficient to render me worthy. On the day of judgment, along with anyone else who happens to make the cut. Now, if you're reading along, you probably notice a a slight difference in the tone of of the, the JMPV. Um, you're, you notice uh, quite a distinction. And this, this passage, the, the real version that you were reading, as I was paraphrasing, hypothetically, uh, was written by a real guy. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote this, and he, he wrote it from prison. In fact, he's, he was so real that he's literally right now a, a bag of bones buried in a white marble sarcophagus under St. Paul's 
cathedral in Rome, Italy. It's been confirmed with reasonable certainty. Uh, so he, he's so real that when he passed on, his evidence still remains. Regular guy, just like you and me. Um, standard issue human, two arms, two legs, at least an eye or two. And just like us, had strengths and weaknesses. You know, if you have read much of Paul's writings in Scripture, you might recognize that Paul was a smart guy, um, an intellect, well-educated, a deep thinker. And so deep, in fact, that um, some of his writings were uh, proclaimed to be hard to be understood in Scripture itself. And this, this real guy, this regular guy, Paul, dealt with the same uncertainties that we deal with in our lives. You know, we're many centuries later, but we're equally live and in the flesh, right here and now. Um, Paul dealt with physical, emotional, spiritual uncertainties. He didn't, he didn't have all the answers necessarily. Yet, if you were reading along and, and you noticed the actual tone in the passage that Paul wrote to Timothy, you might have picked up on the fact that whereas my paraphrase was awash with uncertainty, wishy-washy, shifting, and there was nothing certain about it, Paul's version, the real version, was quite the opposite. Paul absolutely, categorically, uh, unqualified, assured, he was absolutely assured that he had fulfilled his ministry, he had followed the path that God willed for him, that was designed for him, and that he was, a, he was destined for eternal life. These things were a sure thing in Paul's mind. Now tonight, I want to discuss an important topic. I think that it's very important. Uh, it has major implications in your personal walk with God. It, it may be the deciding factor between whether you have ongoing regular communion and relationship with God or not. It, I'm confident that it, it determines whether you live in peace, joy, and general happiness in life, or your soul is troubled and uncertain and wavering and shifting and easily moved because you don't have your spiritual bearings about you. The point is that you might not know where you are. You might not consider yourself lost. I'm not talking necessarily about salvation. But someone who doesn't know where they are doesn't know where to go. Think about that in a spiritual sense. And you may even at times question your salvation. Am I really saved? Can I be saved? Given whatever, whatever comes to your mind that might cause that question mark to be raised in your mind. This issue might affect, literally make or break your usefulness to the kingdom. And that issue is what the Bible calls the full assurance. Do you have the full assurance? And from in biblical terms, uh, assurance can be defined as the certainty that you are continually saved on an ongoing basis, that you are living in accordance with God's will and fulfilling the calling for which you were specifically designed. So that's, I want to talk tonight about having the full assurance. Now we started off talking about uh, a reading from Paul's second letter to Timothy. And I'd like to go back now and uh, abandon the seldom cited JMPV and look at the, the KJV. Let's see what Paul actually had to say. Uh, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. Paul begins saying, I am ready to be offered. Now here, notice what he didn't say. Paul says, I am ready to be offered. He didn't say, I'm about to be executed. He didn't just state a general fact about his situation. He was about to be executed. Sitting there on, on death row, probably uh, in his final hours, not days, probably hours. 
And he didn't just simply state the fact that he's going to be executed. He declared that he was ready. He, was, he knew he was going to die, but he was unafraid of that fact. I'm ready to go. And he speaks, he, he uses the term offered. Uh, that's, that's a word that you use for something that's about to be sacrificed in biblical terms. So perhaps Paul sees himself as, as a human being that's about to be sacrificed, but he's unafraid because he's ready. He's prepared. He goes on in in verse 6, the next statement. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. So here he's using interesting terminology. Uh, He knows that he's not just going to die, and that's the end of the story for him. That's not the end of of Paul. Uh, As soon as his head hits the ground, um, he's not just blotted out and erased from history. The end of Paul. He speaks as a man who knows that something, an aspect of him, is about to end, but something else is about to begin. He's about to depart. And what, what do you depart on other than a journey? I think Paul knows that he, this is, will not be the end of him, that he's going somewhere. And you might liken him to a ship that's uh, tied up to the pier, uh, and all that's necessary at this point is just to loose a couple of ropes on the bow and stern, push off, set sail, and sail on. So Paul is ready to go. He's ready to depart. And he's ready to, to depart now. It's at hand. In his next statement, I've fought a good fight. Now here he speaks as a soldier. When... when uh, a man of God talks about fighting. He speaks from a special perspective because you, know, you might ask, what, what was he battling against? And, and I would say, I would suggest that he was fighting the same fight that we fight today. He was probably fighting the world. He was probably battling against the devil. But perhaps more so than anything, he was fighting against his flesh. But here Paul speaks as a soldier, a warrior that has fought not just a fight, but he calls it a good fight. And he speaks in terms of of the past tense. Any any soldier that speaks in the past tense about a good fight probably won. And I think Paul knows that he has. And he goes on to say in in verse 7, I've finished my course. Now here he speaks as a man who has run a race for a prize. And notice he refers to not just a course, but he talks about it being my course. A specific course that that he recognized along the way. And he finished it. Having finished it, we know if he's followed a course and he knows he's finished it, he knows he's at the finish line. So he started the course He's finished the course, and he's never deviated from that path at any point along the way. To state it another way, Paul was never lost. He always knew where he was, and therefore he always knew where he needed to go. He saw the finish line, and he crossed it. I've finished my course. And the next statement, I believe, is more profound than any of these others. Paul says, with no uncertainty, I have kept the faith. Paul speaks as an apostolic. He was an apostle. By definition, he is an, an apostolic. And as apostolic Pentecostals, we have a particular insight into that statement. Paul himself did us the courtesy of defining the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he wrote to the church of Corinth the first time in chapter 15, and this isn't in the list, Sister Leet, but he defines the gospel in explicit terms as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, he explicitly declares to the church of Thessalonica that Jesus will take vengeance on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we know from this guy who's writing to, um, to Timothy what the gospel is, 
the death, burial, and resurrection. And that if you don't obey it, well, the Lord will take vengeance on you. So we know that when Paul says that I have kept the faith, we know that he obeyed the gospel. And we know this not just, because, not just by, um, by presumption or uh, taking logical leaps, but we know that he repented on the road to Damascus, had a, a profound supernatural encounter with God, and in a moment turned his, his ways, his path from being one of the greatest oppressors of Christianity to one of the greatest, maybe the greatest champion of Christianity in the history of human, uh, humanity. So Paul repented. He obeyed the death aspect of the gospel. And right as soon as he uh, came into town and met Ananias, Ananias uh, commanded him to be baptized. Uh, Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And we know the name of the Lord is Jesus. So Paul has obeyed the gospel in death and now burial. And we know also that he has regularly, routinely, displayed the biblical evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. There's your resurrection. But Paul says in, the, in this verse 7, I have kept the faith. He's on death row, about to die, and he declares, I have kept the faith in no uncertain terms. Absolute certainty. And we also know that he preached this same gospel across the land. Um, we have the benefit of reading about a lot of it because he wrote letters to the very churches that he started in his ministry. Uh, the Middle East and throughout Europe, yeah, he, he was a, an evangelist. Started churches everywhere. And now we see him affirming that he continues to hold true the same gospel, that same gospel that he received, the same gospel that he obeyed, and the same gospel that he preached to the salvation of countless souls here in his final hour. And Paul continues in verse 8 with henceforth. In other words, from this point forward, now, this instant, from right now forward, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Notice, he doesn't, his version wasn't like my version. That There may be a crown, I'm not quite sure. And I'm not sure maybe what kind of crown it is. I'm not really a crowny kind of guy. I don't know if he liked wearing hats. A crown. But this is a, special, a, a particular special kind of crown. It's a crown that's reserved for the righteous. And he doesn't say there may be a crown for me. He says there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness given by the very Lord that he served to his final hour. There is a crown, and not just any crown, but a crown of righteousness only given to the righteous. This crown is a sure thing. It's guaranteed, and he has no doubt. He's assured, as far as we can tell. He knows this because he says, God shall give me. And then he says, it shall be given me at that day. What day is he referring to there? That day, not someday, a day. That day. And he says it without, there's no fearful pretense to it. It's a guarantee. But on that day, he's talking about the day of judgment. That's a day that won't be so joyous for a lot of people. I suspect, well, we know that at the great white throne, there's going to be a gathering of all mankind. There's going to be opening of the books, unsealing of, of books that have been sealed up to that day. Revealing of all secrets, all the angels from heaven will be present there. And a judgment will be cast on every soul. A determination. Life eternal or death eternal. Heaven or hell. It's a binary decision. This or that. And I, I suspect that on that day, the day of judgment, there's going to be a lot of people standing around, gritting their teeth, furrowed brow, tense, anxious, uncertain of what the decision will be made on their behalf, what's going to become of me. And perhaps um, experiences from life will, uh, will be ushered back from, the, from the, the, the back 
corners of their memory into the forefront of their mind of all the opportunities that they had to repent. The times that they've encountered evangelists like Paul or like you and had received uh, a gift of truth and chose not to receive it or weren't willing to, to buy all the way into it and chose to, indul- to continue indulging in the pleasures of sin that are for a season but lead to death on that day. But we see Paul here. He is persuaded. On that day, a, cr- a crown awaits me, a crown of righteousness. So I think we can say that Paul, he really seems assured that he has the full assurance. He seems. But you might want to ask, if, if Paul was standing here today, or if, if you were in prison with him looking over his shoulder as he's penning this letter to his buddy Tim, and you saw him write this passage, and, and, and you tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, pal, how can you be so sure? What gives you the right to speak with such certain terms? about where you've come from, what you've done, and where you're headed. And I think this begs a a, a fair question. Is it even proper to be certain, to have an assurance in your faith? It bears um, dealing with that question because there is a a doctrine out there in Christianity called the idolatry of certainty. Uh, There are some who believe that simply being certain about anything in your theology is in itself idolatry. And I I can't see any better way to answer a question like that than to follow up with the question, the simple question, what saith the scriptures? So how about Job? In chapter 19, verse 25, Job writes, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. He shall stand. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job is certain. Job has the full assurance. How about David? Here's a familiar verse. In Psalm 23, verse 4, David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David is assured. David is certain. David trusts his God. How about Isaiah, the prophet? Chapter 26, verse 3, Isaiah says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah is assured. Isaiah is certain. We're building the case here. Let's go back to Paul for a minute. He wrote to one of his churches in Rome, chapter 8, verse 38. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities or powers or things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we see Paul again. Seems assured to me. He seems persuaded, and he says so. Paul continues, he writes to to the Colossians about uh, the full assurance of understanding and to the Hebrews about the full assurance of faith and the full assurance of hope. And then Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 10, he commands us to give diligence to making your calling and election, sure. If there was no such thing as the biblical principle of assurance, of having certainty in your mind, in your heart, of where you stand before your God, where your salvation lies, what the fate of your soul would be right now if it all came to an end, then Peter would have no right to say what he just said. So I think that the answer to the question, is it biblical to have assurance in your heart? Absolutely. And I would say even further that if you have assurance, you're in good company. 
because you're in the company of apostles and prophets that wrote these scriptures. So we've talked now about assurance that we, we see in these Bible figures, characters that lived long ago. But the point of this message is not just to point things out about what happened long ago. That's part of it. That's the supporting premise behind the idea of assurance. But what about you? This message is about you and me. So I think the next logical question to ask is, what, how can I tell if I have assurance? What are the symptoms of a lack of the full assurance of faith? Well, I would say, and this is just my list, you can make your own if you'd like, or add or subtract, but I think that if you find yourself questioning your salvation, if salvation seems to be a moving target for you, I know that I'm talking to apostolics tonight, mostly, as far as I know. People who have obeyed the gospel, just like Paul has. But I know that there are times in life, despite that fact, that you can still question in your mind. If the trumpet sounded right now, where would I go? So if you question your salvation, that might be a symptom of a lack of assurance. If you feel a distance from God, if you feel like your prayers fall on deaf ears, or if you find yourself being uncertain in your doctrine, in your theology, if you, um, if you read articles or have conversations or listen to sermons from other denominal backgrounds that offer different ideas on the theology that we preach here, and it causes you to question, you feel this prick in your heart and, and there's a, a bit of anxiety or anxiousness that rises up and you, you find yourself experiencing some momentary cognitive dissonance where that sounds believable, but it's not this. They both seem like something that I could believe in, yet they're in contradiction with one another. You might lack a full assurance in your heart. If you find yourself, if you fail to forgive yourself, if you seem to constantly be harboring a sense of guilt, constant feelings of guilt, feelings that you don't measure up, and you find yourself comparing yourself to others at church and and beyond, uh, somebody worships better than you. They pray louder than you. They dance a little more zealously than you do. Um, They... The list goes on, comparing. If you find that you don't measure up and that you can't find it in yourself to forgive yourself because there are things in your past that just... I mean, I understand that God is is a redeemer and then he forgives all sins, but I don't know. I don't know about this. You don't know my story. And so if I can't forgive me, how can I believe that God can forgive me? And lastly, in my list of symptoms, maybe you're not doing anything for the Lord. Maybe you've sunk into a a mode of complacency or um, or perhaps it's related to these other uncertainties where if I don't believe I'm saved, if I don't know that I have the right doctrine, how can I preach a doctrine? How can I, in good conscience, tell someone else to believe something that I'm not sure that I myself believe in? I don't, even, I don't think that's even fair. I, how could I do that to someone else? And so these uncertainties, this wavering in, in my mind brings me to a, a point of, of paralysis where I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go because I don't know where the, dest- I don't know where the path I've, is. I've, I've lost my spiritual bearings. If any of these things are true for you, perhaps you lack the assurance of faith, the full assurance that is a biblical thing. But why is assurance a thing that you might desire? Why would you want it? Well, what does the scripture have to say? Psalm chapter 4 verse 8 says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. 
For thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. So if, if you're assured in your heart, you'll get peaceful rest. You'll sleep easy. Luke 12 and 4, this is Jesus talking. He says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. If you have assurance in your heart, you're not going to worry what anybody can do to you. You're as resilient as you need to be because you know that if you pass on, I mean, if you die today, glory is just all that closer, sooner for you. But Jesus continues in, that, in the next verse, verse 5 of Luke 12, but I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So we have two concepts of fear here that are in opposition. Don't fear man, but fear God. So why is assurance in the Lord a thing to be desired? Because it makes you fearless of what anybody can do to you, and it gives you a deep-founded fear of the Lord, a healthy fear. Another benefit of assurance, how about times of little, times of famine in your life? The prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 17 says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The benefit of having assurance in your heart, when you feel like everything in your life has been lost, that you have nothing left, you will still rejoice in the God of your salvation and the joy of your salvation, knowing that this is not the end of it. It wasn't the end for Paul on death row, and it's never going to be the end for you with assurance. Having assurance in your heart will change the way that you speak. Instead of saying things like, I hope, I wish for, it'll say, it'll, it'll convert your language to things like, I know, and I am certain. You can make a declaration knowing that it's true. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, he's talking about the flesh, he's talking about your, your fleshly temple, if it passes away, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If you have the full assurance of faith, you won't worry about what happens to the, your carnal you because you know that there's a, a new temple waiting for you. And it's an eternal one. Psalm 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for a little while, for a week, for a couple years. No, a lot longer than that. Forever. Having a sense of assurance in your soul will strengthen your faith. It will, it will change the idea in your mind that there's nothing you can do to save a soul. Uh, if I don't have my theology straight or if my faith is weak or if I, don't, if I am not all bought in myself and I, there's, so there's nothing that I can say to someone that might lead them to Christ if I'm not fully assured in myself. Having the assurance will strengthen your faith to say, I have a mighty message of salvation that not only can but will lead souls to the Lord. This assurance breeds faith that you might heal the sick, deliver captives, set prisoners free, restore the broken. A sense of assurance transforms a Christian from being a passive, inactive Christian to one who's a worker. I know what my fate will be. I know what I believe in. I'm certain of it. I'm assured in my soul. And I'm willing to travail, to intercede, to preach with confidence, with assurance. Because I believe it. Because God has given me the assurance of faith in fullness. 
Assurance also produces a spiritual stability. It will convert your way of thinking such that you will never again worry about uh, matters of lifestyle and conduct. Should I wear this? Should I not? Should I do this? Should I not? Should I go there? Should I be entertained in that way? Should I hang out with that sort of company? Should I say things like that? These matters to the assured, saved Christian with the fullness of, of assurance in the heart, these matters are resolved with certainty and there's no sense of, of sacrifice or lack through that obedience because you're doing it for a purpose. So what then might be some causes for a lack of assurance? What causes one to lack the full assurance of faith? I think that this sermon would be incomplete if I didn't say this, and this is a touchy subject. And I say this without any uh, divine um, insight into anybody here. This is just for your consideration. This, uh, I, I can't go past this and skip over. One of the reasons why a soul may lack assurance is due to habitual sin disobedience of the Lord. David wrote in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And this is coming from a man who understands full well the implications of sin. We heard a little bit about that on Sunday. But he, I don't have it here in my notes, but I know that he goes right on in the very next verse to say, but the Lord hath heard me. I think what you see here is a man who understands that if you dwell in iniquity, you will know, you will have the sense that God is far from you. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah puts it like this in chapter 59, verse 2. He said, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin separates. This is a biblical doctrine. And... Harboring sin in your life. This one's not my notes either, Sister Leet, but Hebrews 10 and 26 says, if we sin willfully, there remains no sacrifice for sins. I don't really know. I'm not going to pretend to know the full implication of that scripture, but I think that I can say with confidence, I think that it is true that if we harbor willful sin in our lives, there at least is going to be the sense that we can wear out the grace of God in our lives. And I promise you that if you live that way for long enough, a sense of assurance, if you had it at one time, it will depart from you. So we're talking now about causes for lack of assurance. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. And we can add to the list of causes, a lack of prayer, lack of spiritual discipline. If you waver in your theology and what you believe and um, you're not certain of what to hang your hat on, it, you might lack spiritual discipline. You don't spend time studying Scripture and you don't know the Word and that leaves you vulnerable to lacking the full assurance. Perhaps you have come to a point in your life where you, you have ceased to recognize the, the great things that God has done in your life. You don't recognize the way that God has blessed you. And if God is purported in Scripture to be the God of all blessing and all, all power, and he's the provider, he's Jehovah Jireh, yet he doesn't really seem to be right now in my life, you might begin to lack that sense of assurance. And if you have a tendency to rely on yourself rather than relying on God, sooner or later, your sense of assurance is going to leave you. Because I can assure you of this, you can't do it on your own. You're not even the author of your own faith. God is the author. So if you're going to have any faith at all, that you could, be, you could come to the point of having assurance in your soul, it's not going to be because of something you did. It's probably going to be because you sought the Lord. But here's a twist. Here's a twist to this discussion. So we've talked 
we've defined assurance. We've looked at examples of why assurance is a biblical concept and it's proper to have a sense of the fullness of assurance in your, in your heart. We've talked about symptoms, how to diagnose it in yourself. We've talked about benefits of having assurance. Why is it something that is to be desired? Uh, we've talked about uh, causes for the lack of assurance. And so throughout this process, you might be doing some introspection, taking stock, um, measuring yourself against these ideas to, to figure out where do you stand. And that's entirely up to you. It's between you and God to decide. But here's a twist to the plot. If you don't have assurance right now, sometimes God withholds it. Sometimes God backs away. And maybe he, he whispers a, a little bit quieter. Or maybe he doesn't speak at all for a time. And maybe you feel like you've entered in life into a time of, uh, in biblical terms, you might call it a, a wilderness, a wilderness time where you're wandering. Or maybe you're in the desert and there's just nothing to, to satisfy you. And it feels like there's nothing there to sustain you and your, your tank is, is drawing empty. That is not necessarily because of the causes that we've discussed. It might very well be the will of God. If you feel that way right now, I encourage you to consider that for the Israelites, it was in the wilderness that God fed them with manna from heaven. It was in the desert that God led his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God gave them just enough to sustain them. Yeah, they didn't like it. They complained a lot. But it made them stronger. It took years before they realized that their shoes weren't wearing out. <laughs> you can't just walk around the block one time and realize that God is sustaining you. It takes time. So is it possible, if you're here tonight listening to this message and you've assessed yourself and you've come to a determination, I think that I lack some assurance in my life. It might not at all be because you're dwelling in sin or you lack spiritual discipline or you don't know doctrine. It might just be because God is drawing you nearer to him. Sometimes God does things using tactics that aren't pleasing to us. But the only manner in which they displease us is in our flesh. But it's right in that very process, the refining, being in the wine press, that God gives us strength. It's in those times, those seasons in life where testimonies are produced. It's during those times of, of, of a perceived spiritual famine when you have no choice but to go to God for nourishment, for spiritual nourishment. And it's in those times that your tank gets deeper, that you become stronger, more resilient, with a greater resolve to your faith, and in the long run, a greater testimony. So we've talked about various aspects of assurance. We've talked about a, a twist to the plot, perhaps your lack of it, if you lack it, might not be because of uh, the causes that we listed. But what, what's the cure? For the soul that lacks the fullness of assurance, I think the scriptures offer us some good advice. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you. Increase and abound. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So Peter says to grow in grace. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And then Peter, the man with the keys, says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, 
And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. How are we to do this? With all diligence. Notice, too, in this particular scripture, this is not just a list, but it's a building process. And what's the foundation of it all? What's the first um, element of the list? It's faith. It's upon faith that you build. This is, this is the only pyramid scheme that I believe in right here. But Paul tells, or Peter tells us to give all diligence to these things. So to summarize these passages, what, have we been, what are the action words? If, if you want to cure a lack of assurance in your life, increase and abound. Grow. Love more and more and be diligent. Exercise spiritual disciplines. Immerse yourself in the word. Wear out the, the knees of, of your pants or whatever you wear in prayer. Uh, burn through a couple of boxes of Kleenex with tears. Seek the Lord and, and bring yourself to a, a, a new level of relationship with God. Take it as, a, as an opportunity rather than a burden to carry because it very well might be that God wills it upon you. See it as a blessing. Now, I'm on the home stretch now. If you'd like to stand with me, I feel like it's almost time to pray. The fullness of assurance. I believe that assurance is a, is a powerful thing in the life of a believer. The absence of it can render you paralyzed. The uncertainty and the wavering in your Christian walk can cause you to question where you stand with God. Certainly, it can affect your usefulness in the kingdom. And what we're trying to do here at Abundant Life nowadays, and we always have, but we, we've doubled down, we've, we've re restructured and reorganized and are making a concerted effort towards a, a specific direction, a path, a course, to use Paul's term, towards ministry and evangelism and towards giving the, the flock, the believers, the saints, an opportunity to find their place in the kingdom. If we are all, I pray this, I find myself praying this frequently. Lord, if, if we are your hands and your feet, if we are your voice, then where are the signs that follow? God, if I'm your hands, then what do you want my hands to do? If my feet are your feet, then where do you want these feet to go? I think that a sense of the fullness of assurance is something to strive for. It's something to work towards. It's something to assess constantly in your Christian walk. Because without it, you'll lack certainty. You'll lack confidence in ministry. But attaining a strong sense of assurance, reaching what the Bible calls the fullness of assurance, will keep you confident constantly of your standing with God and the state of your salvation. If your day to go is today, where will, what will, you, will your destination be? It will cause you to trust the word even more. It will cause you to look at the simple words of scripture and say, I believe that. And then, when you are confronted with, with counter-arguments, counter-theologies, you can say with, with confidence and with assurance, that's not true because this right here is. I trust in God's word. It will embolden you to minister in ways that you never thought possible. With the fullness of assurance, you'll recognize that you don't, you're not powered by your own strength anyway. And so it's not your own power that governs your effectiveness for the kingdom. It is simply the fullness of the Holy Ghost in you.
So tonight, if you don't feel the full assurance in your soul, then I encourage you to increase, to grow, to search, to seek, to love more and more, and to be diligent. But brothers and sisters, if you do feel assured, then run the race. Stay the course. Be a doer of the word. Fulfill your calling. And the final scripture I have, Isaiah 32 and 17 says, and the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance for a couple hours, for a day, for a week. No, assurance forever. Forever is a long time and that's how long I want to be assured. Jesus, you are the author and the finisher of our faith. In the spiritual realm, there's nothing that we can do without your spirit in us empowering us. Lord, you told us to go boldly before your throne, to be doers of the word, to be active for your kingdom, to continue to believe, to, to continue in doctrine. God, I pray that you would move upon us tonight. Lord, will you give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.